Hey, Chapel Street Church family, can you guess where I am? I'm here at Kane County Cougar Stadium, and that means one thing, the return of our stadium service. August 29th, all of our campuses, all of our venues coming together in one place at one time right here to worship our one good God. You won't want to miss this. We're going to have baptisms here together, worship together, celebration. You can register for you and your family at chapelstreet.church slash stadium service. You can also pre-order food for you and your family because this is going to be an event you won't want to miss. The theme for this year's stadium service is Welcome Home. And of course, we're welcoming all people back together as we launch into the fall ministry season. But it's also a chance to welcome us back home to the love of Christ as we regather as his church. So don't miss August 29th right here at the Cougar Stadium for stadium service. We'll see you there. How many of you were able to be at our stadium service a few years ago and we had it for the first time? A lot of you? Well, well we're going to do it again and we've learned some things and this coming uh, August 29th we're hoping it'll be a little cooler than it was last time. And even so, if it is hot again, we, uh, we are arranging to have uh, some of the suites above uh, that are enclosed, uh, air conditioned for, so folks can go there and be a little more comfortable during that service. But we're looking forward to that. You'll receive lots more information, but you can register uh, beginning now uh, for that stadium event. Well, last week, uh, most of you know, we began a new series uh, from the great book of Revelation. So I thought today we'd start by having a little fun uh, and having a little Revelation quiz, okay? Uh, it says part one. There may be a part two, I'm not sure, uh, but I'm going to ask a few questions. Some are multiple choice. Uh, some are true, false. And so let's just see how you do. And don't worry, uh, we're not handing out any grades here. Um, at least I won't be, but remember who's watching. You know, something. <laughs> just teasing. Okay. Question number one, the book of Revelation was written by A, John the Baptist, B, John the Apostle, C, John Denver. <laughs> I couldn't think of another John to throw in there. And the answer is B. B. While some scholars do debate which John it was, the prevailing evidence in the early church is that it was indeed uh, the writer of the Gospel of John. Question number two, the book of Revelation was written from... A, a prison in Rome, B, the ancient city of Ephesus, C, an island off the coast of modern-day Turkey. Answer? C. C. Well, good for you. Historians believe that John had been exiled by the Roman emperor Domitian in roughly 90 or so A.D., was exiled and then imprisoned on a rocky island 27 miles off the coast of Turkey, still there today, called Patmos. And if you're thinking uh, Alcatraz, you're probably pretty close. It was not a comfortable place to be. Question three. The book of Revelation was addressed to, A, the Roman emperor Domitian, B, seven historical churches in Asia Minor, C, all followers of Jesus in all places throughout all history, or D, Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> While Oprah is indeed welcome to read the book of Revelation, the answer is B and C. Uh-huh, B and C. Seven real churches, but also to all Christians everywhere all the time. Okay, uh, I think maybe some people missed that one. Number five. Oh, sorry, number four. Uh, the book of Revelation was written to enable us to predict the end of the world. True or false? 
false. Now, while there are elements of prophecy in Revelation, it's not written, intended to give us some sort of code to crack, to know when everything is going to happen. We'll talk more about that as we go through. Number five, true or false? The book of Revelation reveals the identity of the Antichrist. False. In fact, the word Antichrist does not appear in the book of Revelation, only in the letters of John earlier. Uh, next question, number, the last one. Um, no, next to the last one. What does the book of Revelation encourage us to do? A, prepare for the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> B, prepare to fight against the enemies of God. C, read, hear, and keep the word of God. The answer is C. True or false, last question. The book of Revelation has produced some of our favorite traditional hymns. True or false? True. We played several of them today in the prelude, in the instrumental, and we sang one of them. Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea, straight from the book of Revelation, crowned them with many crowns, the Lamb upon the throne, straight from the book of Revelation, and all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him Lord of all, straight from the book of Revelation. Now today, we are in the second part of our series, the seven churches of Revelation. Now, last week, if you uh, were able to be here to watch Jeff or you watched him online, he introduced us to the book by giving us a series of principles uh, or really a lens through which we can read and understand uh, this great book. Uh, and the book of Revelation, he said, is actually a letter. It's a pastoral letter written to encourage and to challenge followers of Jesus who are living in, in an increasingly chaotic and hostile world. Now, what's revealed in Revelation is not the timing of the end of the world or the identity of the Antichrist, but rather... Jesus Christ himself. It's the revelation of Jesus and from Jesus. So Revelation is a series of visions given to John. Uh, some are visions of the earth, which are often quite um, frightening and violent. And there are visions into heaven, which are breathtaking in beauty and glory. And John's perspective goes back and forth as these visions move. And we'll see that as we go through. A revelation is also written in highly symbolic language, called apocalyptic language, full of fantastic images like lampstands and scrolls and beasts and thrones and dragons and multicolored horses and, of course, the lamb. And it's full of colors like white, red, black, and gold, and numbers like four and seven and 12 and multiples of 12. And these numbers are not used for counting they're used rather to imply significance. And we're going to explain some of these symbols as we go along throughout the series. Now, the overarching theme of the letter that we call Revelation is that there is a great cosmic and spiritual battle going on for every inch of the universe. Uh, and it goes, takes place in and beyond human history. And that sin, evil, and death seem to be winning the day. But in truth, they are not. God is sovereign and even now is guaranteeing the victory of Christ over all things. And we are to remain faithful, to resist compromise, to endure suffering, and rest in the hope of that victory. That's the theme. Now, this letter had meaning in the first century, Jeff said, 
It has meaning throughout the centuries of church history, and it has meaning in the future as well. So let's dive in. We're going to read the first eight verses today and see what God has for us. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. John writes, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you. From him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So the first thing we see of many in these eight verses is what I would just call the revealing of Jesus. That's the first point today, the revealing of Jesus. I wonder how many of you have ever been to a, what's called a reveal, a gender reveal party. Been to a gender reveal party, you know what they are. Uh, it's, it's where an expectant couple uh, has a gathering and they reveal uh, the gender of their yet unborn baby through symbolic colors, pink and blue. Our son and daughter-in-law did that uh, months ago. Uh, announced they'd be having a girl by filling cupcakes with pink frosting. You know, it was tasty and it was relatively safe. In fact, I have my I Love Papa socks on today. <laughs> uh, but these parties evidently have gotten more and more creative, more and more weird, and dangerous. Consider these headlines. These are real headlines out of real newspapers. Gender reveal lasagna. Hey, look, blue lasagna. They must be having a boy. How about this one? Australian gender reveal goes wrong as car explodes into flames. Evidently, the plan was to fill a car with blue smoke bombs, drive it by the party, and uh, it did not end well. How about this one? Dad accidentally smashes expectant wife in face with baseball bat. Okay, this young father put a blue powder-filled uh, uh, ball on a ba batting tee and took a mighty swing. You can't see his wife's right there behind him, but she's getting whacked right in the face. Not a great way to start parenting. How about this one? Florida couple uses huge pet alligator to reveal gender of 10th child. Now, there's just too much going on here to even get started. <laughs> Last one. Gender reveal features giant hippo and watermelon. And some people think the book of Revelation is strange, right? <laughs> now, the book of Revelation, as I've said, is also about revealing. Revealing or uncovering that which cannot be seen with our physical eyes. John says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud, 
the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Jeff covered last week that the first word of this letter that's translated revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis, which in our culture today often refers to destruction or world war or zombies, but actually just means to reveal or to uncover. And what is revealed is Jesus Christ. So everything that we read in this book, everything must be interpreted in light of the intention of the book to reveal the person of Jesus Christ. He continues to show his servants things. Put the, put the, the text back up there. Just leave it up there for a little bit. Yeah, that way you can follow along. To show his servants the things that must soon take place. Now we're going to talk about what this means later, but uh, this is the element of prophecy in the book of Revelation. John has been given a vision into things uh, that were written about by Old Testament prophets. He refers many, many times back to Old Testament prophecy. And the Old Testament prophets that looked upon these things from far away, John is saying these things are now very near. Imagine, you know, a, a set of binoculars. You know, if you look through binoculars, if you turn them around the opposite way and look through the big end first, things seem really far away. But you turn them around and those things are really close. So the prophets were looking at things far, far away. What God was going to do, the hope that his people have. John is now saying they are very, all those things are now very near, he says. It says, he, Jesus, made it known by sending his angel to the servant John. Now, this is a mysterious process that we call inspiration. Uh, the visions come from God the Father to Jesus through an angel to John. Verse 2, then, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, the word I want you to focus on here is witness. The word witness is key. Because a witness is one who reports what he or she has seen or heard. And the word witness matters because all of Scripture, all of God's Word, from the historical books to the prophets to the gospel accounts, here to the great book of Revelation, are based on the witness of those who saw and heard certain things and then passed them on to us through God's Word. So John receives a series of visions uh, that he both hears and sees. These visions are the testimony of Jesus Christ himself, who is later called the faithful witness. And then John bears witness by obediently writing down these words. And there's a kind of domino effect of witness then we see. So we see Jesus bears witness to John. John bears witness to us. And we become witnesses of Jesus in the world. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now here we see the purpose of the visions, the purpose of the letter. It's not to inspire fear. It's not to somehow satisfy our morbid curiosity about the end of all things. The purpose is to bring blessing. If God's word is true, by simply being here today, by hearing the words read aloud, you are being blessed by God the Father. By my being able to read these words to you aloud, I am being blessed by God the Father. This is the only book in the entire Bible where blessing is promised to those who read the words. He says, for the time is near. 
Blessing is promised to those who read, hear, and keep what is written. And that's why we're doing this series, because he says the time is near. Now, we're going to come back to this later. But for those who assume that uh, Revelation is about uh, end times, here is John's summary. The time is near. We covered this a little bit when we looked at uh, First and Second Peter, but how can this be? It's been 2,000 years since John wrote these words. The time is near? Well, generally speaking, uh, biblical scholars consider the end times to be all those months, days, and years, and centuries between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. That is the end time. So we are living in the end times. So we are living between his first coming and his second coming. So we can say the, the time is definitely near. So this revelation and this revealing of Jesus then is given to the church. And this is the second point I want to cover today. To the church. Back in about uh, 2003 or so, um, I was part of uh, the first team from Chapel Street that uh, went to uh, Turkey. Uh, to establish some ministry partnerships there. Um, Rita is here, and Rita was on that team. Maybe a few others were on that team as well. And I'm sure Rita will remember, as part of that trip, uh, one Sunday we worshipped uh, in, a, in a small Turkish church. Um, only about, as I recall, 100 or 120 people on a second floor uh, room that they had rented. Um, at, but that group, although it was smaller than the group that's here this morning, uh, uh, was one of the most unique gatherings I've ever been a part of because it included Christian workers, that's what we call missionaries in that part of the world, uh, were there from all over the world who were already there serving and bearing witness to Christ. Uh, here's what I remember. I, made, I actually wrote it down so I re would remember. The worship team that day, uh, playing the instruments and singing the songs, leading the songs, was a Swedish family, mom, dad, and children, who sang in English while Turkish lyrics were presented on the screen. The pastor who preached was a German man who spoke in Turkish and was translated into English by an Iranian woman. The congregation included believers from Turkey, South Korea, South Africa, Australia, Bolivia, Mexico, Guatemala, and I could keep going, from probably 10 or 15 different nations around the world. And it occurred to me partway through that worship experience that I was experiencing a picture of what the church has always been. A picture of what the church is today and a picture of what the church will one day be in the new heaven and new earth. If I jump ahead to Revelation chapter 7, listen to these words. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. That's a picture of worship in the new heaven and new earth. And that's what I experienced that Sunday in Turkey. And that's what's happening today all over the world. And that's what will happen in the new heaven and new earth. To the churches, John says. Verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his, his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now John addresses his letter here to the seven churches that are in Asia. 
Now, there are two meanings here, and Jeff covered some of this last week. Uh, these were seven literal historic churches in real cities in Asia Minor. Uh, there's a map here, and, and you can see that's, that's uh, where it says Asia is really Turkey today. And these cities, uh, the ruins of many of these cities can still be visited today. In a few weeks, I'll show you pictures from just two summers ago when I was uh, in the city, the ancient ruins of Ephesus, uh, one of the churches he was writing to. These are real cities. But remember, uh, when John says seven churches, seven carries the meaning in Revelation of completeness and fullness. So when John says seven churches, he's not only referring to seven literal historical churches in time, He's also referring to the church, capital C, universal. That is the church throughout all history, all ages, including this church here today, including all of us. John writes, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Now, this is a typical apostolic greeting. If you read the letters of Paul, he uses the same greeting in most of his letters, grace and peace to you. But it's also more than a greeting. John is saying, his letter is intended to bring, <coughs> excuse me, grace and peace to those who read it, and that this grace and peace comes from, notice, God the Father, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Notice, who is, that's the God who is with you now by his Spirit, the God who was, the God who always has been, and the God who is to come. We'll talk more about that in just a few minutes. And from the seven spirits around his throne. Now, we can read this and say, seven spirits? What, what does that mean? That sounds a little bit strange to us. Some scholars believe uh, John is, re is looking ahead to the seven angels around the throne. He'll talk about it in a few chapters. But many scholars believe that since seven carries the meaning of completeness and fullness, that the seven spirits are actually a way of referring to one spirit, the Holy Spirit. We, get, we might get a little hint or help here, but if you look back to Isaiah chapter 11, we read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of the Lord. If you're counting there, that's seven descriptions describing the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. John now has completed the Trinity by talking about God the Father, God the Spirit, and now Jesus the Son. And notice he says three things about Jesus. The faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, and ruler of the kings on earth. More about those descriptions in just a bit. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, many of you rec recognize that as a doxology. That's kind of a hymn of praise to Jesus. But in it, John says three things uh, that we need to hear, I think. Three truths that shape our identity as followers of Jesus. First, he says, to him who loves us. Most of us here today, maybe, maybe perhaps most of us, learned the little song, Jesus Loves Me, while we were in kindergarten. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I probably learned that song before I could recite the alphabet. But we don't think of the book of Revelation as being a book about love, do we? We look at what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, think about the scope of the book of Revelation, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The first thing that Jesus wants us to know is that we are loved. If you ask me what I do, I would say I'm a pastor. If you ask me who I am, I hope I would begin by saying I am loved by Jesus. That's who I am. And that's what he wants us to remember. Then he says, to him who has freed us from sin by his blood. If we go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, we looked at it a few uh, months ago. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. John's picking up on that theme. Through the blood of Christ, we are set free, free from the condemnation of our own sin, but also free from the shame of sin and free from the power of sin that's in this world who we are. And thirdly, to him who has made us a kingdom and priests. Back to 1 Peter chapter 2. But you, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, we need to see that one of these uh, descriptions is in the past tense. Excuse me, in the present tense. Love. He says, he loves us. He loves you. But two of them are in the past tense. He, not we will be made uh, free. We have been made free through his blood. We have been made a kingdom of priests. Those are already true of us. And so this is our identity in Christ. Now, why does this matter so much? Well, we ask ourselves the question, how were these early followers of Jesus living at the end of the first century in the Roman Empire, how were they seen by the world around them? Well, historians tell us, and we can see it right in the writings of the New Testament, uh, they were seen as strange. There were rumors about this, this, uh, these groups, this group of Christians that they practiced eating flesh and drinking blood misunderstanding the meaning of the Lord's Supper. They were seen as a dangerous cult. Uh, they were seen as, seen as traitors to Rome because at, the, at that time in the Roman Empire, the, worship, the, the, the cult of emperor worship was growing and expanding in influence. And the early believers refused to participate. They refused to bow their knee to Caesar because he was not their Lord and their God. So John wants them to know who they are despite what the world says about them. And how are we seen today? Isn't it true that we are also sometimes seen as strange in the world in which we live? I think we're increasingly seen as even dangerous by some parts of our culture. We are seen as hopelessly out of touch with the modern political world. And John is reminding us of our true identity. We are loved. We are set free. And we have already been made a kingdom of priests. So the revelation is of Jesus. The revelation is for the church, us. And this revelation is thirdly about the coming of the king. 
That's the third thing today, the coming of the king. Verse 7, behold, he, referring to Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Again, in this paragraph, we see three things about Jesus. First, he is eternal. Now notice in verse 8, when we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, this is the voice of God Almighty. This is the voice of God the Father speaking. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Like, I am the A and the Z of all things. I'm the beginning and end of all things. The one who has no beginning and has no ending, who is and who was and who is to come. But verse 8 is like, God's stamp of approval on all John is writing down. He want to say, he says, you want to know why you should trust this? Because I say so. I am God the Almighty. But I think John is also telling us that just as the Father is eternal, so the Son, so Jesus is eternal. We know this if we look back to John's Gospel, chapter 1 of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Paul in Colossians 1. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So not only is Jesus eternal, he is also sovereign. Back to verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So as we move through Revelation, we're going to see all kinds of images. And many of those images are going to point to the power, position, and authority of Jesus. He's going to be called the Lamb on the throne. Uh, looking ahead the next week, he will be pictured with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. This is not literal. This is an image of power and authority. He's going to be pictured with white hair, with a golden sash, with eyes like blazing fire, with a voice like rushing water. All of these images are pointing us to the one with sovereign authority over all things. And his name is Jesus. And thirdly, John says he is coming. He's coming. Verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. That word wail means to beat one's breast in mourning. Wailing. Every eye will see him, John says. You know, for all of human history, up until just a few short years ago, in our lifetime, this sentence would have made no sense. And every eye will see him. It was impossible to imagine. It would have been impossible to imagine a single event being able to be witnessed at one time by everyone on the surface of the earth because it's a globe. How can everyone see at the same time? But now, through the advent of television and then especially the internet, where images can be beamed simultaneously at the speed of light to every point in the world. We can not only imagine it, it happens every day, but with much lesser things. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes on earth will wail 
on account of him. This is also significant. Jesus is revealed as the beginning and the end of all things. He's revealed as the faithful witness of God the Father, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. He is eternal, he is sovereign, and he is coming. Every eye will see, even those who pierced him, even those who rejected him, even those who do not believe. Now this tells us that right now, from where we sit in human history, it takes faith to see who Jesus is. It takes faith. That's why we're here today. That's why Peter writes, though you have not seen him, you love him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. It requires faith now. But on that day, it will not require faith because all will see. And some will rejoice, and some will wail. Because they too will see and understand who Jesus is. But there will be no more time to believe. No more time to have faith. No more time to repent. Because the king has come to judge and to rule. A few weeks ago, as we were finishing up the letter of Second Peter, I mentioned that my parents um, began each day the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years of their lives by reminding each other that today might be the day. And what they were talking about was the promise of Jesus' return as Savior and King and Lord. And for them, that was not a terrifying thing. That was not a scary thing. That was incredibly good news and very, very hopeful for them. The prophets of the Old Testament pointed toward a distant future when they uh, look through those binoculars backwards. And they look for a time when God would fulfill his promise of salvation through the Messiah, that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, that the Messiah would suffer and die, that the Messiah would rise again in triumph. But they were looking on from a great distance. Because the incarnation, his miraculous birth, had not happened yet. The cross and his shed blood for the sins of the world had not happened yet. The resurrection had not happened yet. But now, at the time when John is writing, when he sees these visions, all those things have already happened. They've already taken place in history. And all that remains, he says, is the coming of the king, which is why he can say the time is now near. John's writing to followers of Jesus, our brothers and sisters, 20 centuries ago, who were living in a world that was increasingly chaotic, increasingly hostile, and increasingly violent. He was writing to people who were increasingly marginalized, misunderstood, persecuted, and hated by the power of Rome. They wondered if God was still paying attention to them. <coughs> they wondered if he was going to ever fulfill his promise. They wondered if their hope in him was true and real. And he's revealing to them through this letter who Jesus is. He's reminding them of who they are in him. Now the world we live in, these 2,000 years later, is not all that different from the first century. Sure, our technology is different. Uh, Rome isn't the center of the world. The emperor Domitian isn't trying to systematically rid the world of Christians but we do live in a culture that 
very much disregards Jesus. Disregards and even mocks. We live in a world that sees us as Christians as hopelessly out of touch and sometimes even dangerous. We live in a world where where evil and sin seem to be winning the day. But John is reminding us by bearing witness to what he has seen and heard. He's bearing witness to who Jesus is, what he is going to do, and to who we already are in him. I hope you stick with us through this great book of Revelation. Even read ahead to the end of chapter 1, which is next week, and on to chapter 2 and 3. Will you bow with me for prayer? Lord, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for this strange and powerful ancient letter written to people who sometimes felt confused and fearful, people who looked out at a chaotic and hostile world and wondered if you were still paying attention at all, wondering if you really did love them, wondering if your promises really were true. In other words, to people a whole lot like us. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to trust your word and fill us with inexpressible and glorious joy. It's in your name that we pray.